I am Bo Ellis Breedlove, and this is the June Bug. Welcome to episode two of our second season. Last week, we were introduced to this season's story, that of Luella Birdie Pierce, and her decision to end her own life on the eve of her 93rd birthday. Though we have only just met Birdie, it has already become clear that her chief fear is the prospect of becoming a ward of the state, an experience she already endured briefly. That fear combined with her increasingly weak body and a terminal cancer diagnosis have motivated Birdie to pursue medical aid in dying. This option is one that drives a lot of debate and opinion. I refer to the process as both medical aid in dying and physician-assisted suicide, though the latter often receives criticism because of its reference to suicide. Altogether, this is a delicate debate, and I have my personal reasons for using both terms. However, the underlying reality is the same. It is an option individuals make after careful consideration and after taking inventory of their own quality of life. I believe that this is an integral facet of our freedom, the freedom to pursue happiness and the freedom to control our own destiny. Medical aid in dying is the ultimate test of those individual liberties and I fervently support it. For more information on the subject, please visit www.thejunebug.org for resources. Details in this story, such as names and places, have been altered or fictionalized to preserve privacy. Episode 2, 7.30 p.m., The Mantle Clock. Niccolo 
fell awkwardly silent at the dining table as Bertie struggled to take the last bites of her cinnamon roll. She pierced the remnants of the roll with her fork and sopped up as much remaining melted butter as she could. The coffee had gone cold by now, as Bertie regaled Niccolo with stories from her time in Myrtle Beach. Niccolo's silence, though, was for introspection, because he had wanted to ask a much more difficult question than he had. Why do people call you Bertie? That was an easy inquiry. It was shallow. What he really wanted to ask would be a test of their intimacy and trust, because he worried it risked unnerving his aunt. Bertie, Niccolo began, I actually do have a more important question to ask. We, we are Catholic, and I may not be practicing, but you certainly are. You've devoted everything you have to... Bertie interrupted. You want to know how I reconcile killing myself with my faith. Niccolo shuddered. Well, to put it bluntly, yes... Niccolo, if God didn't want me to die, he wouldn't give me the power to do so. Niccolo thought about the answer and wondered how he should respond, but Bertie continued. Nico, I have spent the past 92 years watching people die. The very first time I experienced death was when someone very close to me died when I was in school. It was sudden and shocking. The next death I experienced was my first husband, and that... that was horrible. Then, my mother, also very suddenly, Nico, I have seen every type of death I can imagine, the good and the bad, and I believe, with all my heart, that God would want me to have a good death. He would not want me to linger in pain if I could avoid it. He would not want me to become a burden to others if I can still change that. And Nico, my faith is strong enough now that I know he would send me a sign if I was doing the wrong thing. This answer comforted Niccolo. Since his arrival and the beginnings of their shared death discussion, he had harbored a concern that Bertie was acting out of desperation, that this this would be a terrible mistake. Brief, her answer showed Nico this was not a passing thought. Bertie had lingered on the question of how she would die and believed, truly, 
that this was the way she wanted to go. Bertie had long contemplated her life and her death. In fact, it had been her primary focus since returning to her hometown some seven years ago. It was not, to her, a morbid fascination, more an exercise in preparedness and reflection. Bertie had hoped, actually prayed, that she might eventually be the victim of a diagnosis such as the one she had received, terminal breast cancer. You see, Bertie worried that without the intervention of a disease, she would slowly wither away and lose her grasp on reality. Alzheimer's and dementia had taken many of her close friends over recent years. Most recently, her baby brother had spiraled into a dark world of confusion and anger as dementia had taken hold of his once brilliant mind. He had been an attorney, spending decades in court battling for cases and earning a remarkable reputation for success. Sometime around his 87th birthday, Bertie's brother suddenly became confused and easily agitated. The symptoms rapidly seized control of his life, and by the time his 90th birthday had come around, he was withering away in a care facility, entirely unaware of his identity and unable to recognize his loved ones. Bertie dreaded the prospect of losing her most prized possession, her intellect. Thus, disease seemed preferable. The concept of medical aid in dying had been foreign to Bertie until she witnessed it firsthand. A friend from St. Patrick's had taken that route in the face of terminal lung cancer. Bertie realized then that it could be a beautiful way to leave this life. She could decide when she wanted to die. She could have control over how her death would take place. And most importantly, it would afford her the opportunity to curate the moments leading to her death instead of hiding from them in fear, uncertain of when it may come. Bertie fervently defended her friend's death amongst other parishioners at St. Patrick's and had since well-educated herself on the subject. Like she tends to do, she picks a sort of hobby from information, studying, learning. She read all the medical papers she could find, and she knew the state laws. It was her belief that, should he disagree with her choice, her faith was truly strong enough that God would intervene 
and give her a sign. On the contrary, though, since making the choice to die, Bertie had found herself in a blissful state of comfort and relief, and that, she reasoned, was God telling her, it's okay. Bertie finished her last sip of coffee and prompted Nico to take her back to bed. Secretly, Bertie was relieved that the wheelchair her neighbor had given her was not feasible in the house. The sides of the chair scraped the hallway walls and bumped against tight furniture. Truthfully, Bertie loved the intimacy of being held even carried by someone. Years had passed, and she had long gone without physical contact. She was comforted by the sensation of a loving embrace. As Nico came to her side, the mantel clock chimed. It was set to the wrong time. The clock told for 8 p.m., though it was only 7.35. Bertie turned to see the imposing clock positioned on the fireplace mantel. It was large, bronze, European in origin, and adorned with Baroque-styled leaves and columns made of porcelain. The clock face sat amongst a wreath of gold and white, at its base, two porcelain figurines emerged to spin and dance at the top of each hour. The clock was one of very few mementos Bertie had from her childhood home. Not the modest home they had inhabited here in Walla Walla, but where her family lived in Seattle. Their home on the shores of Lake Union was grand. Bertie's mother, Rosemary, had sought it out in 1936. 22 rooms filled the imposing Tudor mansion. The Pierce family had never been wealthy, at least not the kind of wealth Rosemary Pierce had been raised in, but they did have some money more than most, Rosemary's dowry. A hefty sum for the time, Rosemary had maintained control of it and the family finances throughout her marriage. Howard, Bertie's father, was not good with money, but he was, like Bertie, an intellectual, and he excelled at inventing things. It was his success designing an outboard boat motor that first took the family to Seattle. The Pierce family home on the shores of Lake Union was dutifully manicured and maintained by Bertie's mother. And the mantel clock that now chimes in Bertie's living room had once adorned the white marble fireplace in her mother's withdrawing room. Visitors 
to the Lake Union home were often impressed by its grand scale and the extensive collection of antiques Mrs. Pierce had amassed. However, that grandeur was only superficial. Behind the numerous rooms of oversized armoires, poster beds, and fortuny wall coverings was a lady of the house with a very tight purse. For special occasions, a maid was borrowed from a neighboring family, a wealthy doctor who lived next door. Otherwise, Mrs. Pierce attended all the demands of her home herself. It was a privileged experience growing up in such lavish surroundings, but one birdie eventually came to resent and abhor. It symbolized the darkest time of her life. Did you inherit that clock from your parents? Niccolo asked. Bertie shook her head. No, they didn't leave me anything. Me having that clock was an accident. Are you a writer or an artist? Do you need help bringing your creative vision to life? Breedlove Creative Enterprises specializes in content editing and production for artists and authors. We work together to create new and unique media that will capture your audience. Visit bebreedlove.com to view BCE's client portfolio and schedule a free consultation. You don't have to go it alone. Trust Breedlove Creative Enterprises to make your project a success. Breedlove Creative Enterprises is proud to produce The June Bug. Bertie had long been the black sheep in the Pierce clan, pushed to the fringes. So much so, Niccolo was the only person in his generation of the family that seemed to even realize she existed. When Niccolo told his cousins of his arrival in Walla Walla and his caring for Bertie, he was often greeted with the same response. Who? Bertie had all but been written off by her siblings. Niccolo never knew why, though. That wasn't always the case, Bertie being the outsider. At 17, Luella Pierce committed what her mother said was the ultimate sin in her household. Luella had made plans to elope. It wasn't that her fiancé was not suitable, quite the opposite, in fact. He was intelligent, well-educated, and four years her senior. He was soon to be an officer in the military. He was an honorable man. But Mrs. Pierce took pride in her family and in her rich social history in the old world, she did not want any of her children to face 
the difficulties she had. The difficulties from marrying the wrong man. So, as a young mother, Mrs. Pierce had planned for each of her children to have arranged marriages. Mrs. Pierce would decide who they married. They would all marry well and have the security she failed to have with her husband. Luella knew her mother would never approve of the match for the simple fact that Rosemary hadn't chosen the man. So the decision was made to elope. Rosemary Pierce got wind of the scheme and gave her daughter two pieces of advice before she left. If you know what is best for you, you will stay here and let me find you a husband. And Luella, if you leave, be prepared to fend for yourself because I will never forgive you. Luella chose to leave. The romance was short-lived when Luella's husband died suddenly during the war. When that happened, she found herself without anywhere to turn, except to her parents. Luella arrived at the family home on Lake Union on a rainy December morning. It was her first visit to the lakeside estate since she had fled to elope. As Luella drove up the long, winding driveway, she suddenly realized she was bringing foreigners into the sacred space. Since leaving, she had had two children, Louise and Louis. Rosemary and Howard had never met their two grandchildren. As the car slowed to a stop under the carport, Mrs. Pierce emerged from the side kitchen door. She was, as usual, dressed in outdated but elegant attire, an afternoon tea dress. She had guests. The arrival of her estranged family was unanticipated. Luella explained the circumstances and pled with her mother for both forgiveness and pity. Reluctantly, Mrs. Pierce agreed to allow her daughter and grandchildren to return to the family home. Both women knew this would be an uneasy arrangement. Mrs. Pierce was known to inflict reform and punishment through hard work and degradation, and this was to be the case for Luella. The morning following her arrival, Luella was invited into her mother's withdrawing room, where she was informed of the terms of her temporary housing. She was to serve as a servant in her own family home. Luella was tasked with the schedule of daily chores 
and she was made responsible for tending to all the responsibilities of the household her mother had long shouldered. In addition, Luella was to discontinue the use of her married name and change her children's surnames to Pierce. Warily, but uncertain of other options, Luella accepted the terms. In exchange, she was told by her mother, she would be granted a home and the children would be enrolled in a private Catholic school when the time came, at Mrs. Pierce's expense. That holiday season of 1944 was one without occasion for joy. Luella found herself ridiculed and taunted, not only by her mother, but by her siblings. The family Christmas dinner was less enjoyment and more labor for Luella, as she spent much of the day preparing and serving the large gathering of family and friends. Irregardless of her efforts, Luella found herself outcast from the inner circle of her family and a source of despise for her mother. Unique to the clan, her father Howard took sympathy on his firstborn child. He saw the torment and pain she suffered and made attempts as best he could to comfort and welcome Luella back into the fold. Weeks passed tediously, filled with chores, errands, and critiqued dinners served in the opulent dining room while Luella took her meals in the kitchen with her young children. The most arduous task Luella was responsible for was that which would see her finally cast out of the family for good. The chore of polishing the grand staircase in the entry hall. It was a monumental task that required hours of hand scrubbing and applying oils. And it was something she was made to do every Friday and every Monday. Fridays were to prepare the house to welcome weekend guests. Mondays to clean from the parade of dinner party guests and ladies at Sunday tea. However, in late January, a surprise invitation to host a ladies auxiliary luncheon prompted Mrs. Pierce to saddle Luella with the task on a Wednesday. The demand was met with resistance, as Luella insisted the staircase did not need another cleaning. She had just done it two days before. The mother and daughter bickered and argued over the chore, before Mrs. Pierce finally relented to doing it herself. Furious from her daughter's disrespect, Rosemary marched to the top of the 23-step staircase with a mop bucket and wood polish in hand. From the kitchen, Luella heard the crash. The sound of the bucket dropping, water splashing, 
and a loud thud echoed through the stone and wood halls of the manor. Luella rushed to the entry hall, only to find her mother at the base of the staircase, unresponsive. She fled out the front door and to a neighboring house where a retired doctor resided. He arrived on scene within moments and sadly informed Luella that her mother had died. He reasoned it was not the fall that had killed her, but likely a stroke or a heart attack. She had probably suffered the episode at the top of the staircase and was likely dead before she even fell. Luella was devastated. Mr. Pierce arrived home shortly after receiving his daughter's urgent call. She had informed him of what happened. She told him of the argument and the events that took place before the accident. The following morning, Luella rose before sunrise to begin the daily task of preparing breakfast for her father. When she came to the dining room to set her father's place, she was met with an envelope addressed to her, and inside, a letter. Luella, I want you to know that I have given this a great deal of thought. I have been up all night trying to understand and come to terms with your mother's death. Though I feel I cannot blame you entirely for what has happened, I do know that I cannot accept your role in it. It is too difficult for me to be with you at this time. And that is why I'm asking that you and your children leave. I do not wish for you to be present at your mother's funeral, and I do not want to have your presence in this house any longer. I have included a check for some money to help you get established. Please take it and make a new home for your family. The letter was signed, your father. Luella packed her few belongings and loaded up her car. In the trunk, wrapped in a blanket, was the mantel clock. During the preceding events, Luella had forgotten the clock was there. She was supposed to take it to a gentleman who was going to repair a broken piece of porcelain. Momentarily, Luella considered bringing the antique clock back into the house and placing it on her mother's withdrawing room mantle. Then, she noticed her father's car in the driveway. 
he was still at home. Luella decided to forego returning the clock and instead took it with her. Nico, can you bring that clock into my bedroom? I, I want to have it near me tonight. Niccolo carried his aunt back to her bed and assisted in changing her into a nightgown before he returned to relocate the large mantel clock. He positioned it atop a dresser so Bertie could see it from her bed. As he did so, he noticed one of the columns was cracked and missing a piece of porcelain. Oh, that's too bad. Did you ever try to have it repaired? Niccolo asked. I was supposed to take it to someone once, but I never did. Bertie gazed upon the ornate antique that had taunted her for decades. She had both cherished possessing it and despised the sight of it for what it represented. But now, she looked upon it as a symbol of redemption. This ornate clock had traveled with Bertie through many homes the many lives she had lived since leaving the house on Lake Union. She had never dared part with it. Here in her modest home in Walla Walla, the clock was no longer a foe, but a companion, a source of encouragement. Encouragement that she was doing the right thing, returning to her hometown and giving all of her worldly possessions, including the clock, to the very church her mother had herself been a devout parishioner of. Bertie hoped that if her mother were watching from heaven, she would recognize the efforts Bertie had made to repent the attempts she made to win her mother's love and approval in the final years of her life. This dedication to St. Patrick's was less religious as it was an effort to redeem herself in preparation to meet her mother once more. The tragedy that Bertie had been blamed for was a turning point in her life. As Bertie drove away from the family home that day in January of 1945, she was aimless, uncertain of where to go or who to go to. As the hours passed, she found herself driving through snow-covered eastern Washington towards Idaho, back to her husband, 
who was no longer there. A short drive outside Boise was a small farm town where her in-laws resided. It was a humble, small farmhouse, not fit for both her in-laws and Bertie's family. But it could be a good place for her two children. Bertie hoped her in-laws may take the children in. They agreed to do so. Desperate to find herself, her identity, and help secure a future for her children, Bertie left them behind. She gave her in-laws the money she had been given by her father and drove into Boise. There, she went to the Sears Photo Studio and reclaimed her job as a photographer. Two days later, she was back on the road, working as a traveling photographer for Sears. Every paycheck, no matter how modest, she sent to her in-laws. Weeks passed, then months. Bertie continued to reassure herself that she was doing the right thing. The sight of the family heirloom presiding over Bertie's final hours made her melancholy for the comfort and companionship of her siblings. Perhaps now, as she nears her death, they will finally take pity on her, recognizing that they have always loved her, irregardless of what has happened in the past. Years have gone by with scarce interaction with her brothers and sister, but now that they know Bertie will soon be gone, perhaps they can make amends. Bertie asked Nico to call them so she could say her final goodbyes and plead with them to come be at her side. The conversations were brief and concise. Bertie offered her love and her apologies for the decades past. Her siblings passively entertained her whim with shallow placations. She asked each one to come be at her side before death. But each declined. As dusk settled over eastern Washington, Bertie lay in her bed, anxiously awaiting the next toll of the mantel clock.
The June Bug is produced by Breedlove Creative Enterprises. Original music composed by Bo Ellis Breedlove. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. You can also help support this podcast and the Junebug Project by becoming a supporting member on our Patreon page, www.patreon.com backslash the Junebug. Thank you for listening. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Stay tuned for the next installment of The Junebug.